and welcome once again to From the Center, podcast by the Center for Western Studies. I'm Jack Bow, your host on faculty with the Center for Western Studies, joined as always by my friend and colleague, John Hodges, the director at the Center for Western Studies. Sir, you're looking a little world weary. <laughs> well, it's been a busy weekend. Yes, you were at a conference, right, over the weekend? Yeah, yeah, they had their the annual National Labrie Conference in Rochester, uh, Minnesota. Why Rochester, Minnesota, by the way, in the middle of February? Why would that be? They're trying to capture the essence of the Alps without the Alps, I guess. Maybe that's it. Maybe they just miss the Alps. They miss the Alps. They want snow. Well, it was, you know, like five degrees every day, something like that. There you go. Fortunately, it wasn't snowing, though. That was, I mean, I've been up there when it was snowing and all that, and then it was kind of hard on everybody. Uh, there were some people actually who had trouble getting there because of snow in Chicago, though. Mm-hmm. People who flew through Chicago. We had people from overseas and from all around the country uh, come yeah. <clears throat> for a conference. And this annual conference has a, a, a pretty hefty following. And uh, uh, people come from the various branches, you know, the English Libri or the Dutch Libri or Swiss Libri. Or- right. Now, what was the conference was themed? I assume. Yeah, each year, uh, each year they have a theme for the conference. Last year, uh, being 2017, it was the uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So they were asking questions about the Reformation, and and uh, everybody was coming at that from a different perspective. They asked me to 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 speak about uh, the influence of the Reformation on the arts. So I gave a lecture there, and that we repeated then at a little mini-conference in October at the uh, uh, seminary in St. Louis, uh, okay. the Covenant Seminary. But this year's theme was uh, beauty. Oh. And, of course, that's right up my street. I've been writing about and thinking about aesthetics for, uh, well, ever since I became a believer in 82, I guess. Yeah. 80, 82. When dinosaurs ruled so, the earth. When di- <laughs> that's right. That's right. Or when dinosaurs ran the bureaucracy, whichever, whichever <laughs> comes first. Right. My, uh, my uh, thesis, my grad thesis, uh, I decided needed to be about uh, aesthetics. So uh, even right then, you know, when I finished up graduate work, I was thinking about aesthetics. And ever since then, it's been on my mind. And, and really about 25 years ago, uh, I started doing these Labrie conferences every year. And the theme then was beauty. So I gave I gave a talk at that one of those first ones, and it's been about twenty five years yeah. uh, on Apollo and Dionysus and uh, and their influence over Western aesthetics and uh, <clears throat> how they kind of represent two sides of the uh, study of beauty. Anyway, I've uh, used that probably every year with my students ever since. You know, you know, we, every year we talk about. Apollo and Dionysus. Yeah, the thing. One thing that's interesting about the center we do here, shameless plug. Yeah. Uh, about the center is it. You could say our education. We call it a humanities gap year program. If we could unpack that, I guess we call it an arts and ideas yeah. kind of program. Yeah. So it's like books, but and paintings and music and sculpture and everything and the ideas they're trying to embody because that's what we believe art is: the embodiment of ideas. Even self-expressive art is embodying the idea of self-expression That's right. you know, in some way. That's, right. That's um, right. And because of that, we have found in our experience that when an idea becomes embodied, it's a whole lot easier to grasp. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, beauty, I'm not sure if we call beauty an idea, but like when beauty is embodied in some way or an idea is embodied beautifully, 
right. that way. Right. It has a certain power that like a mere syllogistic sort of argumentation or a mere kind of didactic presentation of it doesn't have. Like that's that right. sort of power to it. And that's one of the things I think most of the kids who have come through this program probably walked away with is when, when the ideas became embodied in a powerful and sometimes beautiful way. Right. We told, we've told the story before of like St. Paul and the Tate Modern thing or like the one who saw the Rose Window Stuff like that, uh-huh. that type uh-huh. of thing. How in- inspiring it was for them to actually see beauty in in the flesh, as it were, in- incarnated, yeah, instantiated. In- 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And because we've seen this up close, we've experienced it ourselves. Because we're we swim in art of some kind. You know, you're mm-hmm. a composer and a conductor as well as a teacher. I'm a writer as yeah. well as a teacher. So we kind of swim in these things. Uh, and, and an amateur cinemaphile as well. Yeah. yeah so yeah. we swim in these things. And our last dis- our discussion last time was about millennials trying to like dispel right. myths and talk about maybe what we think they are, what they think they're about, or at least what the current generation seems to be about. Mm-hmm. And one of the points we ended on last time uh, was that millennials are starved for the real. Mm-hmm. All right, they want reality. All right, for good or ill. Mm-hmm. Right? What, I, what I meant by that was um, there is an opportunity for good. There's an opportunity there. All right, for the gospel to come in, it has to come in genuinely. Like if you present the gospel like a sales pitch or something like that, then no, right. it's not going to go anywhere. There's there's a different sort of like wanting to see through fakeness, mm-hmm. right? So to say. So it's like there's an opportunity there for the gospel genuinely lived and spoken can get in there. But for ill, they're so starved for reality that there's a very good chance they'll take any snake oil salesman that comes along the path uh-huh. as long as they, you know, put on a kind of veneer of genuineness. You know, they put on a mask of authenticity. That's sort of mm-hmm. like the danger is authenticity. It's authenticity. You see the quotation marks <laughs> I'm making with my hands? The authenticity itself becomes a kind of... Uh, illusion or kind of mask people put wow. on things. Imagine a mask of in of authenticity. Right, trying to pretend to be like, I, oh, I'm the real deal. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's a danger. Another danger is the desire to see through everything can lead you towards cynicism really easily because you feel like you can see through. See again right. the quotation marks. Make your hands. You can see through just about anything. Yeah. Uh, or you yeah. think you can. And so we ended it by noticing that that millennials or the current generation and many ways are starved for the real and it manifests in all kinds of ways but we were curious about beauty's relation to that because beauty is a kind of embodying of something uh-huh right, okay, right. I, we could put it that way yeah that's exactly right and we are thinking as educators who have been doing this for a few years the center way of doing it for years we've mm-hmm. seen the power that beauty has that's even beyond mere argumentation right and not you know it could be anything from a rose window to one of us trying to explain Dante's vision in Paradiso, and we get really worked up about it, and like are really like are just struggling for words, and they like catch that you're struggling for words, and it just mm-hmm. kind of blows them away the thing you're trying to say. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we felt that you and I felt that maybe we could spend some time trying to talk about well how beauty could reach millennials, maybe, but before that, beauty itself. Just what is it? Yeah, what is the thing itself? Right. Right. Uh, is it in the eye of the beholder? Is yeah. it, you know, uh, an object in existence somewhere or mm-hmm. something like that? I mean, what are, 
is it just a certain pattern of things or is it like any pattern of things like, or what is it you know because mm -hmm. if we're like well we maybe beauty can reach the millennial generation can, can reach the millennial generation with the truth then what is this thing yeah 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 i think that's an excellent question and it's kind of the question that uh i was trying to answer in my talk at this past conference so it might be i can draw on some of that the uh but the sort of thing we teach here as you say rightly is that uh that uh truth and goodness and beauty actually are related to each other hmm. in and they're related in in god so uh like hans von balthasar and several others uh you can argue that the three of those things together could be called the glory of the lord so if you were to try, just like with the Trinity, to separate them out from each other, I mean, you can, you can do it, but what you do is you lose out on all three of them. You can't, you can't separate, say, beauty from truth and goodness and still keep truth and goodness as they really are. Mm -hmm. In the same way that if you take one person away from the Trinity, you don't have two complete persons left. You have... You have nothing, actually. You mm -hmm. have less than than God. So uh, I think it's important to try and figure out how those those three uh, work together, kind of triangulate, be on the glory of God. And you can imagine if you live in a world as we do that has generally dismissed God from the equation. They've left him out of their thinking about uh, life and uh, meaning and so on. Um, it's easy to, to see how... Uh, the glory of the Lord, glory as a unifying factor, uh, is no longer able to be a kind of unifying factor for those three things. And those three things then get, in a sense, separated from each other and then analyzed individually. Mm. So something can be true and yet not good, or something can be good and not beautiful, or something can be beautiful and false, and that kind of thing. Um, so, so what are they each, right? We we, we think about truth as being, uh, in a Christian mind, truth being the person of Christ. We think about goodness being the, the person of, of Christ, basically. His, his own character, is his holiness is what goodness is. Mm -hmm. But I think in the same way we have to think about beauty as, as being uh, defined by God. That is, God himself is what beauty is. But how does it get manifest? And that's really the question you're talking about. Um, I think when you said... Uh, uh, when we see beauty in the rose window or in the words being chosen to describe the Paradiso or the, uh, the painting or the whatever we're looking at, what we're actually seeing is a kind of metaphoric relationship between the physical object, in that case the word or the music or the window, and the thing that it points to. It, 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 you know, it, it speaks of something that transcends itself. And right. that thing isn't always uh, uh, understandable. Right. And it's only, it, it, it's only uh, um, ascertainable or apprehendable uh, by way of that material um, object. Right. That's why when we saw our student look at the rose window at the uh, Notre Dame that one time, uh, suddenly he said, "I have to rethink everything. I have to rethink what uh, I've been I've been understanding life to be." And basically, because he right. he was suddenly in brought into con, ton, contact with something that he, in a sense, didn't know existed until he saw it manifest right. in that physical 
unity of that window with all the myriad of, uh, of beautiful pieces. Well, that, is, that actually raises another question of whether or not is beauty something coming, is beauty the thing coming through the physical thing, or is it the way the physical thing is organized, but what's coming through it is something else, mm-hmm. or is the question moot? Because it's like we're not talking. No, you can't really divide them up in that way. Yeah, no, I don't think it's mood at all. I think I, I think when we organize material into the shape that will represent or that can represent something of that transcendent reality, then we get a glimpse. I hate to keep using a visual metaphor, but that's the only way to kind of we see things. We talk about seeing things in our minds. You know, we 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 understand something. When we say see, when I say see, I mean that. Understand. We comprehend or apprehend um, something. Because the physical thing actually participates somehow in the shape. This is really bizarre to think about the shape of something that's invisible. But Mm -hmm. the, the physical thing participates somehow in the shape of the thing that it's referring to. Take a take the take marriage, for example. We we're told in Ephesians five that husbands and wives are to relate to each other in a certain way, and that husbands are to relate to the wives as Christ did to the church, mm-hmm. and wives to husbands as the church does to Christ. Well, that's not just to sort of set our marriages in some kind of order. It's to open our eyes to a reality that we can't see. Mm-hmm. There's a reality out there between Christ and the church that is invisible, and so we have this manifest manifestation of that invisible relationship in a physical, tang- tangible uh, way in in that in in marriage. So there's a kind of um, well, it's metaphoric. You're a writer; you understand about yeah, metaphors. Our our, li- our listeners might understand about metaphors. Metaphors are not the same thing as similes. Similes are a comparison of two things, in a sense, keeping them separate from one another. Um, this this um, uh, chair is like a throne. Well, that's. I mean, you could. Yeah. Well, if you say a chair is like a throne, you're saying I know about chairs and I know about thrones, and I'm comparing the this, two, and you can see the relationship. This chair is as cold as ice, or something like that. Sure. Yeah. This chair is as cold as ice. That's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know that ice is cold, and now you know that the chair is cold because right. it's like it somehow. Right. But when we talk in metaphorical terms, we're making a comparison between two things, but it's a closer comparison. It's a mm-hmm. it's a comparison that. Um, that participates in it. It's um, how can I put it better? If you said that the chair is ice, mm-hmm. you might be closer to the the idea. You get a more I think, I think visceral kind of participatory kind of uh, the way, an idea. The way I've understood it is that when it comes to the metaphor, what it's really pointing at is actually not on the page. Like there's a whole bunch of if we're, if we're sticking with the writing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, was it I.A. Richards, I think? I can't uh-huh. remember. Uh, I, I think he was the one who brought up the idea of the tenor and the vehicle, which was a way of understanding metaphor, that the word on the page is the vehicle for something off the page that he called the tenor. Oh, it's, okay. And so it's like the word on the page is like your connection point with this thing that's off the page. So uh-huh. it, right, it, it right. is like an intimate closeness because that word is supposed to be representing something, but it's it's representing a whole slew of things that are you know beyond it. 
or something like that. I mean, I feel I feel like if I was writing and I said if I was writing a story, I said the chair was as cold as ice. And here's a simile. Then I'm just trying to say it's cold like ice. That's it. Mm-hmm. Like it's all on the page. There, you got all the information. Oh, you I need. see. Uh-huh. But if I was if I said something like you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, his soul is ice or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't just mean it's cold, mm-hmm. right? There's a whole slew of other connotations going on there, like frigidity or deadness or uh, uh, chill, biting bitterness or something mm-hmm. like that. There's a whole unmoved. Bu- now, unmovable yeah, unmovableness there's a whole bunch of stuff off the page so yeah, like with a right. simile all the information you need is there well the words just point to each other and to themselves and that's it mm-hmm. but a metaphor the wording points to each other and the word that's metaphorical or is doing like the metaphoric connection whatever it is the metaphoric vehicle is mm-hmm. pointing to a bunch of stuff that's not on the page mm-hmm. that it's like bringing it in like a it's like a magnet pointing those things in or like a channel that's like channeling all this stuff into it and I think that's if that's what I understand. I think what you mean by the metaphor, just like a uh, uh, a, a stained glass window uh, is a very. I often think I think about this. Talk about this. A stained glass window is a very strange window because mm-hmm. it's not a window to look through. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. a window. It, it's it, it it could go through. Like light comes through it, just like any other window. But you're not supposed to look through it. You're supposed to look at it. Right. 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 And it's like there's something beyond the window that the window is serving as like a channel for. And is somehow at the same time revealing something about it. It's not. It's not like a completely blank window you can just look through and oh, there's the sun. But it's not a wall either that blocks the whole thing out. Something is right, coming through, right. but it's being filtered in a certain way. Yeah. So a metaphor is like in writing. A metaphor is like something on the page that is point. It's the window that's like is filtering sunlight beyond it. So right. it's something off the page. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, I, I've got a quote here from Henry Norman Hudson, uh, who was a 19th century poet and cleric. He was a cleric. And he talks about the difference between a simile and a metaphor. I thought maybe it would be helpful if I read it. Okay. He says a simile is, um, well, it, he says a simile lays two terms side by side for consideration, kind of like we've just been saying. Mm-hmm. But he says, but in a metaphor, on the other hand, the two parts, instead of lying side by side, are drawn together and incorporated into one. The idea and the image, the thought and the illustration are not kept distinct, but the idea is incarnated in the image, mm-hmm. so that the image bears the same relation to the idea as the body does to the soul. Mm. It's that close a relationship. In other words, he says, the two parts are completely identified, their qualities interfused and interpenetrating so that they become one. Mm. And what I mean by, that's what I mean by by, uh, uh, by participation in. Mm. All, all uh, language is symbolic. Mm. Right when you said chair and ice, we had ideas in our minds. But if you wrote those words down, the, the C H A I R is not actually the thing. It, right. right? It's a it's a it's a sign in a sense that relates you to the thing, right. and you understand it intellectually. You you grasp the meaning of the word. But in a in a metaphor, uh, a metaphor a metaphor is is more than just a sign mm. pointing at something like a like a word points at a cat or a chair a, a metaphor is something that actually looks like a cat mm. or like a cha- like a chair <clears throat> so that the thing that you're looking at has the same shape of, of as the thing that you're you're perceiving you know the transcendent thing 
Um, so it's the difference between a sign. A sign is like a a, a, a metal sheet on a post that says five miles to Memphis, mm-hmm. you know, but there's nothing on that thing that actually looks like Memphis. Right. Or five miles or five miles. Exactly. Right. right. So so that's what I think is the difference between a sign anyway and a symbol. And a metaphor is more like a symbol. So a, a cross that you might have on a necklace around your neck mm-hmm. uh, is the same shape. It participates in the thing, it participates by being in the same shape as the thing to which it refers, the actual cross where Jesus was crucified. Uh, so a metaphor is like that. We say Juliet is the sun, or that chair is ice, or his heart is ice, as you said. Uh, in both of those cases, we're making reference to all, like you said, of all the characteristics of the sun. Juliet somehow has embodied now characteristics of the sun. Whether she actually has characteristics, I mean, to Romeo anyway, right. she does, right? And so in a sense, we're getting a, uh, an idea of what Romeo is thinking, too. Right. But uh, uh, that's how that's how metaphors work. And could it possibly be? This is my contention. Could it be that beauty is the recognition of the um, relationship, that metaphoric relationship between the object and the thing that it refers to? So that when you make an object that is in the shape of that transcendent thing, we experience beauty. We get a sense of that resonance. Right. Of and those the, two things, and the more the shape it is, the better. Or the more in the shape of it that it is, the more beautiful it would be. Yeah, yeah. So you see, that would take into consideration both sides of what we usually assume when we talk about beauty. That is, uh, beauty. You know, Thomas Aquinas said, "Beauty is that which pleases upon being perceived." Right. So our our pleasure in in getting in touch with this thing is somehow beautiful is is beauty to us but also he says that the beautiful object an object is beautiful if it has certain characteristics and he talks about unity and proportion and clarity mm-hmm. as three things that an object needs to have in order to be beautiful well we could debate about what those things are. I mean, we don't have to hold to just those specific things. It may be that there we want to say something else. But the one thing we can't debate about, the one the thing that is sure about that second, is that those are characteristics of the object and not how I feel about them when I see them. Right. I may not feel anything when I see something that has unity, proportion, and clarity. But whatever it is, those those three uh, those three words are describing the object and not how it is I feel. So we have two different definitions. One, how do you feel when you experience something? And the other, what is the what are the characteristics of the object that you're experiencing? So it sounds like, well, I don't know if this right way, but it's the the true facts about yourself and the true facts about the thing. Right. right. That's they, right. They both are true, aren't they? Right. They both have a truth about them. That's right. And you can see what happens when those things get split. I mean, last week I walked the kids through this essay by C.S. Lewis. It was his afterword to the uh, Pilgrim's Regress. Pilgrim's Regress, right. You know, it's, Pilgrim's Regress itself is an interesting thing, but the essay in the back is worth the price of the book. Uh, the short version is he tries to unpack a big metaphor in the book of like the northern and southern regions of the map of his world, uh-huh. and the northern regions are basically supposed to represent a kind of increasing rationality that goes into like rationalism and hyper rationalism and abstractionism and so on and so forth. And to the south, it's more and more uh, sensuous and emotive and uh-huh. pathetic and things like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. It's basically Apollonian Dionysian. Uh-huh. And there's like a road that cuts through the middle of them, and that's the central road that you have to hold. Like, to, to not swing oh, either good. way. 
Sure. Uh, he said to to heed neither the o- overly foolish or overly wise giant, but to hold like the center road. And he, ha- it, when giving examples of the kinds of people that float in the northern way or in the southern way, mm-hmm. you could see that he gave examples in art. And so, like in the northern style, it's somebody who is obsessed with the technicality of work. Uh-huh. And if it's not, if it doesn't fit exactly the parameters correctly doesn't check off all the boxes that they see fit then it's you know it's worthless it right. has absolutely Not zero beautiful. value everything is gone from it but then down in the southern sectors uh the only criteria is that you feel uh-huh. and so every feel and in the worst cases every feeling is justified simply because it's felt mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you see you can see art like that like on I feel like today the, the art that seems to get pushed most out, like, uh, well, the high art, quote mm-hmm. unquote, that gets pushed out in the public is purely by this metaphor, Southern. Like, it's, uh, right. it's not, right. you know, it's not American Southern, but it's, it's, Southern it's, in the sense it's, that it's, it's subjective it, and yeah, so it's high, Dionysian. heightened subjective Dionysian right. self expressive art, purely self expressive art, where I'm expressing my inner, my inner state about something. Sure is purely that okay it's it's like it's just it's literally my feelings and it's valuable simply because it's my feelings right. i'm expressing my feelings and it doesn't matter if you the viewer get anything out of it right it doesn't matter it's like right. if, if if you like are a viewer who has some technical knowledge of how painting works for instance and you go to see this painting that's purely self-expressive all your knowledge may be completely useless because they may have done a whole bunch of stuff that is specific to them like mm-hmm. the way they did it or the way they did this or the way they did that, and you're just lost. But the attitude would be, well, that doesn't matter. Because like, like that Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where he has, no. says, like, you have to know my, my artist statement. Yeah, you have to read my artist statement. Like to an artist, understand uh, my work. You know, a good artist uh, a good artist statement says more than their art ever does, <laughs> how you put it, which is right. perfect. That's perfectly the kind right. of the one side of it. It's all my feelings. Art is about the feelings of the author and whatever feelings you have. And if those feelings don't coincide, who cares? That's right. not the point. Right. On the other side would be those who are like the hyper-technical. It has to fit this exact parameters and formula and check off all these boxes. If you miss one even, then somehow your art is garbage. Right. Or something like that. There's, right. no, there's no gradations or spectrum at all. It's just this one way of doing it. Um, there was... I didn't see it, but my brother said there was a documentary about uh, the lost Jackson Pollock painting. This lady who claims she believes she has this Jackson Pollock painting that had been lost forever. But at the end of the movie, they brought in some dude who was a Jackson Pollock expert. And according to the way my brother put it, so I'm getting this second hand, but he's like he wanted to punch the guy because the guy was just so snotty and so pretentious. And like he wouldn't even look at the painting until he could like... He, he like walked into the room covering his eyes and like and like he wouldn't look at it till he could like sit properly and oh prepare himself oh, exactly so sake. he could see it exactly and he spent like I don't know thirty minutes just staring at it and walking around and like really and he concluded that it wasn't somehow <laughs> uh, but it's something like that it's almost like uh, you know it doesn't fit the parameters therefore it has no value uh-huh. so you could see once you separate like. The truth about the object, the truth, the objective truth, and the subjective truth, and you separate those two things, you get these two kind of brands of well, anything really, but in art, you get those two things. And the real trick would be to somehow bring, bring those together. things back together. That's right. To where That's your subjective right. feelings are about the actual object's composition, and their composition actually merits the feelings that you're feeling about. That's them. a very good word, I think. Merits. Mm-hmm. There, we talk at the center here, of course, about the idea of uh, 
what what Richard Weaver used to call uh, unsentimental sentiment, or what maybe uh, uh, Plato and uh, and Augustine would call a kind of ordo amoris, where you order your loves in accordance with how things really are. So your loves are your affections, obviously, and your affections have are closely tied to your emotions and and so on. But but what I think God is calling us to is just that ordering that that you you're referring to that. Uh, that things that are that are of our affections, our loves are not um, what's the word untouchable um, by the by the fall. Mm-hmm. Our our affections are actually out of order, and what we need to be able to do is uh, restructure our souls. Really, our, so our, our what we love in accordance with what God loves, and when we do that, then of course I think we're attaching our loves according to uh, uh, the right order. Well. That's how these two things might have to come back together again. If, if uh, on one hand we have criteria about what makes a good artwork, unity, proportion, and clarity, for example, uh, and we look for those things in it, but we never engage with it emotionally, mm. well then, yeah, we get to become heads with no hearts. Mm. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, if we if we if we seek out um, sort of aesthetic experience for its own sake, you know, without asking ourselves, are our, uh, our affections in order? We're just, the fact that we have this expressional, uh, this, uh, rather, the fact that we have this emotional response to a, p- a piece of artwork or event or whatever, uh, simply means that it's worthwhile because I feel something about it. And that actually becomes a little bit like uh, drug addiction, because we we uh, we seek out these experiences for their own sake and become kind of addicted to the experience, and and then we're really not evaluating the thing itself at all. So it could be very well sort of drag us off into the southern hemisphere, as you're talking about. Right. Uh, Some the southern uh, aspect of of, of uh, Lewis's world. So how do we get the two together again? Well, we have to somehow recognize that feelings are valuable and worthwhile at the same time that those feelings can be affected by the fall and they may be attached to the wrong things. Mm-hmm. So we have to connect them back up again. It's also a matter of connecting back up. We started out by saying like truth, beauty, and goodness and those things together. Yeah. Uh, connecting all those things back together. Because you said if you disconnect it like, you know, they lose each other. Yeah. You can even say that, like, beauty disconnected from truth and goodness is not actually beautiful. You know, it, right. like, it may carry, like, right. a veneer of it, but it's not actually doing what it's supposed to do. Right. Our truth, this, this is, like, this is, okay, truth without goodness or beauty is actually not true. There, there, there's something false about it. Right. And uh, I, I feel like for that one, I need to give an example, okay? It was yeah, my, I, my own experience. So... My PhD studies are in like post-structural critical theory, and I'm studying it because I hate it, and I want to basically yell at it in a dissertation <laughs> for a while because that's how psychotic I am. But why why this came about is I a couple of things. The one I'm going to focus on right now is when I was in like grad school at the University of Memphis, and I took a literature a literary. Uh, uh, research course or something Plato uh-huh. basically teaches you theory it's supposed to teach you how to read books what it really just teaches you is uh marxism and third wave feminism and, and stuff wow. like that yeah uh but it, it we were in there and i remember i broke down basically 
the post-structural view of things. I, try, I was really trying to understand it because I knew this thing was important. It yeah. shaped a lot. Okay, a lot yeah. of a lot of thought. And I was trying to understand it. And when I got down to it, I remember that logically speaking, it was valid. It made sense logically, like the way it pro- put out its propositions. The logic was valid. Mm-hmm. But the world that like then posited by that logic was so daggum ugly and empty and repulsive that I was like, I want nothing to do with this. Wow. Like I, it's lack of beauty kept you from buying its truth. Is right. that what you're saying? Well, in a way, it's like I already didn't like buy its truth because I was kind of right, like, right, I, sure. because I knew it was anti-logocentric and as a Christian, that's like already off sure, ground. that's true. But I realized in that moment, even if I didn't have that, you know, back thing, if I got to this point and saw like the kind of thing that it was... I, I I would still probably be like I don't want this. This right. is this is horrifying. This right. is like an ugly, empty, awful world. The the uh, the example I the other example I use in correlation to that is like a puddle glum down in the cave of the Green Witch. Oh yes, the silver right. chair. I right. have, I have confession time. I have never read the silver chair before, but I know this thing oh, because this scene. Uh-huh. this scene because uh-huh. people talk about it and it resonated so well. She basically. You know, the, the Green Witch, like, basically sings her song and puts the kids and everyone into a trance, basically arguing in them into believe that Narnia didn't exist. That the only uh-huh. thing that exists is her cave, uh-huh. right? So, and she argues it very logically. She's like, oh, there was no Aslan. You just saw my cat, and you just sort of abstracted a bigger cat, and there you go. Right. Right? Or, you know, but there's no sun, all right? You just saw, like, one of the torches in my cave, and you just sort of abstracted bigger using your imagination, and you, you mm-hmm. got the sun. Mm-hmm. It was... It was a pure, perfectly logical argument, and mm-hmm. the kids were actually having trouble, like, oh, wait, no, that's not true. Like, they couldn't, like, get around it. But they didn't know way. how to argue it, yeah. They didn't know how to argue right. it. And Puglum, I guess because he was just so simple, like, he was more simple-minded than anyone else, just couldn't couldn't buy it. And he, like, like snaps the spell by sticking, like, walking forward and sticking his foot in, like, the fire. There was, like, a campfire in front of them, and, like, it, the pain woke him up. Uh-huh. And he basically tells the Green Witch that even if, he said, even if Narnia is not true, right? Well, first of all, you expect me to believe that a simpleton like me and a bunch of kids imagined a world that licks your cave hollow. Like, you really expect me to believe that? But second of all, even if it was true, I would much rather search for Narnia and Aslan, even if they weren't true. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. they are so much better than this empty, desolate cave that you have. And it's something like that. It's almost like, now, Paul Glum probably didn't realize half of what he was saying, but I think there's something to it. If you run into something that seems logical, and it seems true, but it's so what the world it gives or the consequences of what it says are so completely utterly repulsive and ugly and even immoral in mm-hmm. some way mm-hmm. then that should be amongst other things a signal that maybe it's not true yeah maybe it's missed something maybe it's missed something about reality and i think there is something to that like when truth is separated from beauty or goodness then maybe it's not even truth anymore mm-hmm. you know maybe, right. and that actually right. could make it extra dangerous because it still has like a veneer of truth but there's something it's missed something yeah. that's not there same thing with goodness and this comes into like the social justice question all right uh-huh. goodness that's been divorced from beauty and thus doesn't have any order or any kind of uh, trying to shape itself to any larger reality who knows what you get out of it? Maybe not any goodness, but if you have it divorced from truth, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, when will that goodness actually turn into a kind of cruelty or a kind of foolishness that actually causes more damage? I think you're onto something there. Imagine back at, in the Enlightenment, um, Immanuel Kant 
basically says you can't there has to be a god he he would say but you can't know anything about him mm-hmm. because he is going to be so other and so different than everything you can imagine uh we can only we can only know something of him by studying the world that he made uh, and recognizing re- recognizing the order and so on of the world, we have to understand that there was an intelligence behind this. But but what, basically, what he was doing was saying, let's keep studying general revelation, the world that God made, but let's reject the idea of, of special revelation that God actually speaks into the world, uh, His word that we can trust by faith. You know, and uh, that's typical of the Enlightenment, right? Well, with with this line between fact and value, fact being the world and value being those in, those things that we hold to somehow apart from our empirical studies, um, he he pushed beauty off into the value side. So beauty becomes purely subjective. Beauty becomes something that is purely in the eye of the beholder. Uh, and everybody might think differently. And the, to, you see, there's a little bit, like you're talking about uh-huh. a little bit of truth. There is a little bit of truth in that because we do have different preferences. We do. Some people do like modern architecture better than colonial architecture. They do like Chinese food better than French food or whatever. We uh-huh. have differences of taste. They right? like this this musician better than that exactly musician. this music or this style or this performer better than that performer. Sure. So with Kant's dismissal of the of the beauty of things to the subjective realm that there isn't anything that's objective mm-hmm. well what he did was he, he retained an aspect that he calls formalism mm-hmm. so that things uh the form of things actually can be sort of critiqued but you see how it's done almost under a microscope right it's, it's like a rationalistic sort of like check the, off the boxes right kind of the mindset. thing the thing that causes like anything coming through it and affecting you well, we can't really know what that is. Right. The, that's right. The transcendent aspect of it is gone altogether, but the fact that it has some sort of internal formal cohesion mm-hmm. is all we mean by beauty, or all, all he meant by taste. Mm-hmm. If it's something's tasteful, then it has a sort of order to it inherently. But by, but by relegating the subjective part aspect of beauty, the, the real enjoyment part of beauty, as Adler would say, as opposed to the admirable part of beauty... Um, uh, by doing that, he he separated beauty from truth. Mm-hmm. So, what happens is, and this is what Balthazar's argument is, that down the road, then, the lack of beauty meant that we were eventually going to lose uh, our understanding of the other two, mm-hmm. truth and goodness. And I think that's what we see mm-hmm. in our in the last two hundred and fifty years or so. We've seen the sort of romanticized. Uh, rejection of morals, mm-hmm. and uh, and now a kind of today a kind of substitute morals that we might call social justice uh, mm-hmm. stuff, th- where where man is basically making up his own morals and and frankly becoming very cruel, like you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a kind of intolerance sown into this whole social justice wor- work. Right. You know, if you don't feel exactly like I feel about it and agree with every single idea I have about fixing it, then you're obviously the devil and you need to exactly. pay the price. You, yeah, exactly. You're the, you're the enemy. You're evil now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we don't, not just mistaken, but you're evil. Right. That's how we're thinking. But look at else, what else is happening. We're, we're losing the idea of truth. 
uh, you and I both run into, well, you deal with it every day in your school, I'm sure, in, in schoolwork. But, um, I, you know, we've both heard faculty members at various places saying things like uh, reason as a, as, a, as a functioning system is, is something that was built by white European men to oppress minorities and women or something. Right. You know, that kind of craziness. Right. The idea that there is anything out there that's, that's true has been doubted now. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think I think von Balthasar is uh, justified in his original idea that the three of them have to stay together. Or, let me read you the quote. He I, I had a, a quote of his on, in my paper here, too. Right. It's about um, how, uh, uh, well, he puts it very poetically. Let me just say it the way he said it. Okay. Here we go. This is uh, Hans von Balthasar, quote, Beauty is the last thing which the thinking intellect dares to approach, since only it dances as an uncontained splendor around the double constellation of the true and the good in their inseparable relation to one another. Our situation today shows that beauty demands for itself as least, at least as much courage and decision as do truth and goodness, and she will not allow herself to be separated and banned from her two sisters without taking them along with her as an, in an act of mysterious vengeance. <laughs> <laughs> we can be sure that whoever sneers at her name, beauty, as if she were the ornament of a bourgeois past, whether he admits it or not, can no longer pray and soon will no longer be able to love. Oh, wow. In a world which is perhaps not wholly without beauty, this is a continuation of the quote, in a world which is perhaps not wholly without beauty, but which can no longer see it or reckon with it, in such a world, the good also loses its attractiveness, the self-evidence of why it must be carried out. Man stands before the good and says to himself, why it asks himself why it must be done and not rather its alternative evil. For this too is a possibility and even a more exciting possibility. Mm-hmm. Why not investigate Satan's depths? In a world that no longer has enough confidence in itself to affirm the beautiful, the proofs of the truth have lost their cogency. In other words, syllogisms may still dutifully clatter away like rotary presses or computers which infallibly spew out an exact number of answers by the minute, but the logic of these answers is itself a mechanism which no longer captivates anyone. Mm. The very conclusions are no longer conclusive. End quote. And I think that's what, back to your question about the, the millennials and whether or not beauty could have a part in getting, the, getting millennials back on track with, with God, um, it could very well be that they're experiencing that very thing. Yes, they see just the, uh, reason out there. They see uh, syllogisms clattering away. They see the incredible uh, amount of information that they can get on the Internet now and so on. But if they're not compelled by anything. They're not won over by it somehow, right. without beauty, that is. Right. And the thing is, is that I think this is why I said the opportunity is also a danger, because when they are won over to something, they they go down that whole track hog. like whole hog. Yeah, because, exactly. like I said, they're starved for it. So right. when something comes along and it feels like... Cause, Balthazar is right. I could say it more pro- prosaically than him, or I, the, 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 which means worse than him. But <laughs> he, he, he's right. If you lose beauty, then goodness loses its sheen too. Because if beauty is about something conforming wonderfully and a- accurately to some larger thing, yes, 
and you lose that, then goodness loses its sort of inspiring transcendent element. You know, right. well, who cares? Well, you go and do that. Why can't I go do my own thing? Yeah, Something like exactly. that. If you know, if truth is not trying to say anything other than, other than just like, oh, look how the syllogism just stacks together. Who cares? Like, right. like who cares? If if the world, like I said, the world it posits is totally, or the idea it posits and the consequences of it are so utterly repulsive, right. or just are ugly or dead. Yeah. Then who cares? But if you see something that is in the shape of something grand mm. and splendid, and it just looks like it's so much bigger than itself, and it has sort of a, you get a sense of a high calling. Like, mm -hmm. this is not just your opinion about things or whatever. This is something bigger than you that you can give yourself to, and you can shape your life to something. You can finally wrap yourself around something and fit to it. I feel like millennials are either super apathetic and just don't care about anything because they think everything is fake. And or when they run into something that is real, they will lunge at it with both hands. Mm -hmm. And this can lead to them being struck in awe by a rose window in Notre Dame or to strap explosives to their body and blow themselves up in the name uh -huh. of like a religion or uh -huh. something like that. I mean, why do you think radicalism happens mostly among the young? Right. Right. And forget, you know, not just even like Islamic terrorism. Think about like in Charlottesville when someone like drove over all those people oh, and the yes. things. It was, I, I believe it was a young guy. Uh, right. Or why was that rally a bunch of young guys in the first place? Why are they running to kind of ethno nationalism or something like that? Or why do people on the left run to Marxism? Yeah. Well, because here's something that feels real. Like it's not a, it's not a pitch. It's not a line. It's not a, it's not a soundbite or a bumper sticker. It's something that actually gets you out there holding torches and running people over. It actually gets you out there talking about how you can actually overthrow things. And more than that, it's it's uh, it seems to be an explanation of how things really are mm -hmm. on the surface, right? It takes into consideration all that. Oh, my goodness. They say, look, this Marxist theory actually explains everything. If you just look at everything through this sort of economic you know, uh, lens, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it explains everything. Well... There's a beauty in that. Mm -hmm. we, we talk about the beauty. Beauty is not just um, prettiness. Right. right. It's not a, just a superficial thing. It's, it's, um, it could be it's more of this coordinating thing that you, that you see the links between things. Things light up, as it were. Right. You know? There's a kind of synthesis that goes Yeah, on. that's right. And I, people can say, you, know, you hear people say that the crucifixion is beautiful. How can that be, right? I mean, that's a horrible thought, this torture of this human being, right? How could that possibly be beautiful? But, but, if think about the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of the crucifixion for a second. The truth is that it actually happened. There's right. nobody that thinks that it didn't happen. You right. know, no, whether you believe in Jesus or not, it doesn't make a difference. No historian thinks it didn't happen. So there's a, it really did happen to this person called Jesus in this whatever year it was, 30 A.D., um, the goodness of it is is put put that on hold for just a second and and go to this idea of beauty and see that if beauty is the coordination or the co the connection the transcendent connection between the physical and the and the and the transcendent the recognition of a kind of harmony between the two of them then as soon as you see that that everything in life actually happens that is that we call good actually happens by somebody being willing to sacrifice something on some level for the benefit of somebody else. I think you can actually look at the world and say, 
every little tiny act of generosity. Mm-hmm. When I when I brush my dog, mm-hmm. I'm doing it. I'm taking my time, mm-hmm. and I'm and I'm getting him groomed so he benefits from it, not me. But even if you want to say, well, I benefit because that ha- hair isn't in the house, you know, that I have to vacuum up. I'm saving my wife the time of maybe, va- or me, whichever is doing it, uh, the time of vacuuming, right? I'm, I'm, I'm doing some good by taking my time and, and using it for the benefit of somebody else. Um, it, it, the same, if you, there's one cookie left and you and I both want it, right. you, I, if you say, I'm going to forego the cookie so that you can have it, a good thing happens in that, you know. It's it's not just that I get the cookie; it's that a, that it happened because you were willing to give it up in a sense, or the reverse. Mm-hmm. Well, then then suddenly the crucifixion is the biggest, most massive, perfect example mm-hmm. of that kind of idea that the world actually lives and works by way of someone, in this case, God Himself, mm-hmm. sacrificing Himself for the benefit of someone else. So by that we get love. And what is love but the essence of what it means to be good, right? The the sac- the ability to give yourself away to somebody else is what love is. Not just the feeling of love, we have right. those too, right? But the ability to love love is actually an action. It's right. something that you do. Well, if if love is an action, that's the good part of it and the truth is that it happened, then between the two, we begin to see that God actually cares about us. So there's a deeper truth that's revealed. And then suddenly this example of someone sacrificing himself on the cross for someone else is the greatest, grandest, most beautiful, resonant Exp- uh, expression of the of the love of God for His whole universe, right? Uh, and that's what's beautiful about it. You begin to see in this one uh, example uh, the the reality beyond it, the reality behind it, and that's what, I think what we that's why we call it beautiful, right? And that's and you just see all the art that came out of that oh, as, yeah. an, as an example of like exactly people who saw the beauty and saw the truth and saw the goodness of it all wrapped up together, and. Beauty has a power behind it, mm-hmm. right? It has a power. People, are, I've, I've told people that the way to a person's head is through their heart, kind mm-hmm. of thing, right? Mm-hmm. They're connected, but it seems like you got to go through the heart. Uh, C.S. Lewis said something similar in the Abolition of Man. Plato seemed to say the same idea that, you know, the reason is supposed to reign, and yet it's the heart, it's the trunk, it's the sentimental area that's actually the thing that pulls the boat most of the way, and you mm-hmm. need to get in on the side of reason, mm-hmm. right? That's the Order of right. Morris thing, and. It, because that has beauty, has beauty, which can mean like not just prettiness, but like a kind of cohesion. Sounds so mechanistic, but it's not. But yeah, you I don't know, know what mean. I mean. It's like it's, sure. it, it creates a an, a thing where all the feast, the the pieces fit together, and mm-hmm. all the tum- the tumbler like cl- closes in on each other, and it just sinks together. You know, Marxism gives the this it doesn't just explain things in some sort of banal way, really like checks it off and gives it like a scientific report. It explains it in a way that things light up and you see right. I suddenly I see. Like right. I suddenly see. And in that explanation it gives you a noble calling. Amen. And it ca- right. and it calls something out of you that's sacrificial. So it has all that stuff together. I mean right. 
The ethno-nationalist thing, when you look at it, seems to explain. It's like, oh my gosh, I finally see, and it calls something out of you. It is, and this is controversial to say, but just if you don't understand this, you're going to think all stupid reasons why these things happen. There is a sacrifice in gathering together in a rally somewhere to ballyhoo about something that you know people culturally are taboo about. Uh-huh. It's a sacrifice. Get on there and go on TV and uh, TV, but get on Facebook and have your face plastered all over the internet. Sure. Well, after it happened, people plastered like people's faces. Do you do you know? Do you recognize me? I'm a Nazi, and you need to fire me from your job or something. Oh, like that. I, I mean, see. Right. Is it, right. It actually required a sacrifice. Yes. Right. It's like right. it calls something out of you to fly out to Syria, leaving all your or wherever out mm-hmm. there, and leaving all your family behind, and being trained by these people. To basically go blow yourself up is a sacrifice. Right. Oh, huge. Yeah, huge. Yeah. It calls something out of you. It is so. This is why I said it's also so dangerous because because it's, it's seen as so noble, so noble, sure. and it has the power, that right. nobility, and that explanation, that cohesion. You belong. This is the world. It makes. It has this co- this kind of cohesion to it. You belong here, and there is something for you to do. Right. That right. matters on a gives, grand scale. Gives you meaning. Right, it, it gives you gives your life meaning it, and purpose. It does. You're, it, you're a part of a bigger thing. Right, that's that's a great draw. And that's why I say that there's this opportunity and this danger. Right, like a very right. very big danger. I mean, people will fall in all kinds of insert. They'll follow all the false floor mills because they really want the real floor mill. If you'll pardon yeah. the Edmund Spencer reference, but oh, it, it's it's it, it, they can because they want that something real. And yeah. Here's this thing coming along, say I have something real, and they have just enough of a cohesive and noble and sacrificial vision that it actually pulls you in. Sure, it actually is playing on the reality that God has made in us the longing for us to be one with Him mm-hmm. and to have our find our meaning in Him and to have the purpose of our lives then and the guidance of our lives come from Him. Mm-hmm. All of that can be uh, counterfeited. Counterfeited, or- exactly. It, Given given that that's how we are, the, the devil can come along and counterfeit those things. And if it's close, it sounds like the truth. It sounds like it has goodness to it, and it sounds like it has beauty. And when you see all those three things come together, it's compelling. It is. It's compelling. So you're right. It's, there's a danger to this approach, but it's at the same time, it's the only way out. Yeah. If you attach it to the right, see that that's the key. It's like it, the, it's not just there are people I think who have written books or said stuff about well, beauty is what's going to save us, and I and I want to say I agree, but it's beauty attached to truth, right, and to goodness. It's like those things together. If you just have beauty, right. but truth is just kind of an afterthought, and goodness, you just kind of assume, or you just kind of assume, yeah, you know, like yeah. well, truth is beauty, beauty is truth. It's just like whatever. If you get the one, you get the other. Not always. I mean, there is a way for beauty to be a counterfeit, to have counterfeit truth or counterfeit goodness. That, it has to be detached from those things. That's right. That's right. And that Keats reference that you just made, beauty is truth, good truth, beauty, is, is the sort of romanticized view that makes it very difficult to discern between those two things. We don't want to lose our ability to discern amongst those three, but we don't want to separate them from each other either. So... Um, it's very important. I think you mentioned a minute ago about uh, Lewis and the and the abolition of man and how we're led by our by our magnanimity, actually our our hearts, our our chests, as he would say. Mm-hmm. Um, our feelings, <clears throat> our our feelings and our and our chest, as it were, um, are 
are the thing is the thing that needs to be attached but there's a kind of let me put it this way our chest does lead us but our chest if it's if it's wise will listen to its head and that's i think what you're saying about mm-hmm. adding the truth in yeah because the truth the the head actually can't lead the human being but the thing that does lead the human being needs to submit itself to that that head you right. see so there's a kind of internal submission we're talking about not just one to another right. but within ourselves where our our affections recognize that they are they can go awry right. and our, our our affections then have to be attached to the right things this is one of the reasons why art is so important to teach uh the history of art because uh we want our next generation to have the benefit of all of the sensibilities that are embodied in the art of these past centuries, you know. Uh, the reason that classic art has stayed classic is because it continues to speak of transcendent things that, that speak to every generation. That's what I mean by transcendent. Things that are, that are the true, are true for every generation. And they embody a kind of, uh, right response or right ordering of our hearts, uh, to, to things. If you don't have any understanding of that, then in a sense, if you cut yourself off from your own history, or aesthetically speaking, mm-hmm. then what you end up with is your feelings looking for something to attach themselves to, some way to express themselves, mm-hmm. without the benefit of having been tutored, in a sense, mm-hmm. uh, by all these other things. People used to say, I like watching old black and white movies because uh, they, in the 30s and 40s and 50s and so on, they, they come from... Uh, a different perspective about, say, romance, right. and and uh, if I watch a you know a a, a, a Cary Grant movie, mm-hmm. I get a sense for how Cary Grant's character in there reacts to certain stimuluses, stimuli. Mm-hmm. stimuli. Uh, when does he punch a guy in the face? <laughs> when does he kiss the girl, or when does he not kiss the girl? You know what I mean? Right. They're all the reactions that he has are attached to events, and so you get. A, a kind of catalog in your mind of uh, of 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 how to respond to things. What's mm-hmm. the reasonable way to respond to things? You get it from books too. You read great novels. You read great uh, uh, epic poems, and so right. on. You 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 get a you get a way to speak in a mm-hmm. sense. You get a sense for a kind of uh, uh, order in your mind of the kinds of things that one could expect. You may not have, have experienced them yet as a young person, but uh, now that I've seen, you know, these, I've seen Homer's uh, characters do this, or I've seen Milton's characters do this, or I've seen Shakespeare's characters do this, um, now I have a series of ways to address those things. It's kind of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you can do that from music, too. Imagine if you if you took uh, young people who had no exposure to music and you and you gave them a diet of nothing but super high energy emotional uh ex- you know e- emo music right. you know for their whole lives um how would that person be able to relate to human beings mm. compared to the person who maybe had had some of that but also had had uh you know Mo- knew the mozart symphonies right. or something something that had a sort of refinement to it refinement of of affections you could argue to- yeah you could argue that a person who had nothing but a steady diet of one style of music doesn't actually even understand that style of music exactly because they see it they it's divorced from a sort of context any context like exactly right and you can't exactly even right. 
within it pick out the best of it because uh-huh. like uh-huh. because you know is this is not a like this is not a like a snotty like well Mozart's better than emo music this is like if you listen to Mozart you may actually do emo music better uh-huh. <laughs> right exactly. or, or you may or like the two things can actually correlate with each other and say or you may pick like better artist or something like that because you you recognize higher quality or something like that this this idea of like it shapes your sensibilities and it shapes your soul and your mind in a particular direction that's what art does and what it's yeah. for yeah. that's why we earlier said it's like the embodiment of things actually it's why it seems to have a even though it's with truth and goodness it seems to have a relation to them that is i don't know what the word is it's different or it's superior or it's something but it's like beauty is at its best i guess when it's at when it's the embodiment of truth and goodness in some way of some kind of truth and goodness that's when it's really, that's really right. beautiful that's right and you see this in like the, the example that keeps going through my head is in like the divine comedy um, when you go through when Dante gets out of hell and he like gets this huge vision of evil and damnation and its ugliness and its repulsiveness, he's like, "Well, I don't want that." But before he can go to Paradiso, he has to go through Purgatory, which is a sanctifying thing, where he sees examples of like the virtue and the vice itself acted out. But on every single level, there's some kind of artistic representation of the virtues and the vices. That's right. Like you know, there's That's frescoes right. in the walls, or there's statues, or uh, the people have to be reciting these things over and over again. And you can see in art examples of this virtue, this vice embodied in something. And so you can see the repulsion. I've told people that the Purgatorio is kind of like a, like each level of it is like a miniature divine comedy because you have mm. like examples of hell, examples of heaven, and then you in between who are like trying to sanctify it or who are being sanctified, yeah, being sanctified. by your actions and stuff sure. to get there. And the whole thing culminates in Purgatorio with, like, the ultimate example of a heart that is rightly aligned and how powerful the force of beauty is. Mm-hmm. Dante gets to the top of Mount Purgatory. He's gone through all the things. And the last step he has to go before he gets to the earthly paradise where Beatrice is. Like, this is what the whole poem seems to have been about, is right. get to Beatrice. Right. So he gets to the top of it, and there's a wall of fire. Mm. Right, and that's what he has to walk through. Is the final sort of like refiner's fire that purges him out, right. and he is right. completely terrified. Sure, right, because it's fire. Right. Well, well, Virgil's with him. Virgil, that embodiment of, you know, virtuous reason of the classical world, sure. who's been trying to guide Dante or be his partner and friend through these things. He goes up to the fiery wall and he basically argues to Dante. He's like, uh, he's like Dante. This fire is like spiritual fire that's cleansing your soul. It can't burn your body, and you're like. In, you're not airy and stuff. It's not going to see. I like. Yeah, it doesn't hurt me or whatever. And he argues for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he gives a perfect, reasonable. This is why you should do it. Mm-hmm. Dante doesn't move. Mm-hmm. He's completely petrified. So you know what Virgil says? Mm-hmm. He's like, I can see Beatrice. Oh. So I could ah, I can, I can see her eyes. I think right over yeah. there. Dante that starts to move. He starts yeah. to move. He starts to kind of go through. And Virgil like takes his hand and like leads him through the fire. And every time Dante gets a little trepidatious in the fire, Virgil's like, wait, wait, I I, I can just see her eyes. I can see like the stars yeah. in her eyes. And Dante keeps moving. She's waiting for you. And yeah, she's waiting for it. And it's this image of beauty, but it's not just beauty. Beatrice represents the truth. Like the high, a right. higher truth than right. even Virgil understood. Yes. Uh, Anthony Eslin said she's like theology, basically, is what she's the embodiment of. But she's this beauty that he loves, but she's also the truth and true goodness because she sent people to come rescue him. Yes. And she's the one who can guide him through 
paradiso, which is all goodness and truth and beauty all combined together. But it's that idea. It's, it wasn't. It's not enough that just like a, a pretty girl's on the other side. Right. 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 It's not superficial. This is profound beauty. Right. This is the kind of thing we're talking about. Beauty actually has to be. Re- we have to regain that idea of what beauty is, yeah. not just this idea that it's superficial pr- prettiness or momentary pleasure. Mm. That's the danger, I think, in seeing it all in very subjective terms like we do today in our Dionysian kind of time, right. where if I feel, it must be beautiful. If I, if I feel it, mm. well, then that degrades and degrades and degrades into basically lust. And that's not what Dante's about at all. Uh, yeah, that's that's the picture we want of beauty. That that is a combination of beauty, truth, goodness right. together. Uh, that that leads you to a richer and more fully orbed uh, right. life. It can fall out into lust, and in a, a different spheres, it can fall out into ignorance. Right. Like, again, right. the Divine Comedy, because it's such a brilliant example of all this. True, like you know, God is like the essence of like love and reason combined together, the heart and the head basically together. Right. Right. And in the Inferno, you're watching those things get twisted, perverted, until you go all the way down, reason and love basically just evaporate. Mm-hmm. Like the ninth circle nothing is left. full of nothing but malice and madness. Yes. Basically all it is. Right. And in, you know, in real life, if it's this similar thing. If you like separate beauty from truth and all you have is just the subjectivism and feeling, in like relations with other people can boil down to lust it can also just boil down into ignorance you know like well this grand narrative makes me feel good so i'll believe whatever it says yeah you know no matter what it says you know uh, i'll go away i'll go trot around with torches and the thing and maybe even get in my car and run someone over because this thing this is my lifeline like i have to have this i forget for a moment whether you know the racist attitudes are good or bad or not forget for a moment whether marxism actually works socially and economically and doesn't lead to poverty and tyranny forget for a moment whether blowing people up is actually honoring to god in some way murdering people is honoring god forget all that stuff all right it makes me feel like i belong and matter that's the uh, that's all the like that's is the danger of the power of beauty in a world that is unmoored from truth because if they feel like they see it They'll just dive for it, and I, I feel like that's true. Been true throughout history, but I feel like today it's it is very very true. It's true even in the inner city in these gangs, isn't it? So people sure. people are uh, uh, loved. They feel loved. They right. embraced. They get into something that's bigger than themselves. And let's put aside all the questions about morality. Let's all that. None of that matters in a sense. We'll do whatever we have to to stay in this gang and to do. To keep our position there, and to keep the to be to be loved in it, you know, to have that kind of uh, beauty of uh, of of community, uh, it's a kind of perversion of community, right? Because right? it's leaving out the good and the true. Um, I think we better wrap up, but one last one last point, you know, we've been talking about the head and the heart. We've been talking about Apollo and Dionysus. We've been talking about how we need to bring those two things together. I think uh, for the Christian, it's fairly obvious now that that uh, the model that we need for something like that is the incarnation itself. Mm-hmm. If the if the if the Apollonian is all about the head and the ideal and the perfect and so on, the transcendent uh, that gets applied to aesthetics on that side. Um, then Jesus, of course, is the perfect, right? He's right. the ideal. He's Apollo personified, basically. He's he's holiness perfected, and he's uh, in every way God. 
But at the same time, if the the opposite, of course, is the Dionysian, that's the particulars of the world, the the, the details, the the experiences, the dirt under the fingernails, day to day kind of world. Mm -hmm. And of course, he's that too, right? In his incarnation, he's a particular person living in a particular time in history, right. uh, working with a being born actually of a woman, and and uh, with dirt under his fingernails, working in a carpenter shop, and uh, suddenly he's. He's Dionysus too. He's experiencing everything, including death, uh, in this life, suffering and death in this life. So uh, he, in, in his person, embodies those two sides perfectly together, and I think then he's the answer. Once again, Jesus becomes the answer for a lot of the the questions that the Greeks had, the sort of false dichotomies that the Greeks often had, right. uh, including this one. So maybe the, his incarnation then should serve as a model for our artists mm -hmm. in the sense that we are taking ideas that are invisible and transcendent and maybe uh, seeing something in our imaginations that we haven't been able to express to anybody. And then and then expressing them in words, in poetry, right. in film, in, in clay, in music, in painting, and so on, in all those ways, manifesting, making it in, into physical, uh, uh, incarnating them, actually, you know, mm -hmm. making them into a physical thing so that they can be communicated uh, to other people. That's how God has revealed himself right. uh, to us in the incarnation. That's how we reveal uh, our deepest thoughts and feelings and expressions and so on to one another, too. Well, uh, I guess we'll wrap it up. I feel like we could go elsewhere with it as well. But well, I think it would be good to talk about this now, maybe in future episodes, uh, about how this really would apply to how, uh, how we evangelize, how we think about the faith and speak to millennials more often. I what agree. do you think? No, I agree. Yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, for recommendations, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. is there, I mean, do you have something in mind already? Or I was wondering, you keep mentioning Hans Balthazar, Von Balthazar, Von right? Balthazar. Is there any particular book of his? Yes, yes, indeed. I'd like to recommend a book. It's called uh, "The Glory of the Lord: A Theological Aesthetics." Okay. Now, it is not for the faint of heart. No. It's a heavy-duty book, and I've been slogging through it for years. Uh, but it's worth every moment that we put into it. Hans von Balthazar, B-A-L-T-H-A-S-A-R. Right. I believe I. Have a book of his right now from a dissertation called mm -hmm. Cosmic Liturgy, the, oh. the Universe According yes. to St. Maximus, the Confessor. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to reading it. It does not look like light reading. Either. No, no. He's a, he's a Roman Catholic theologian, a very profound thinker. He passed away not too many years ago. Mm. Uh, but he's a contemporary, basically, of ours. Uh, the only thing, let's see, I have on my mind to recommend is uh, I've been listening to it recently because I love it. Uh, I wish I had like known about it during my MFA times because I was writing a lot of Southern-esque literature set in Appalachian Mountains. So hmm. to have been able to listen to Aaron Copeland's Appalachian Spring. Oh, what a wonderful piece! During that time would have been fantastic. So I recommend that to you. Uh, particularly, I have the one that was done by Leonard Leonard Bernstein. Yeah, uh, yeah conducted. Right. So if you can find the, it's Aaron Copeland's Appalachian Spring. It's going to sound like every Western movie you've ever. <laughs> watch, but I think that's because it was an inspiration for much of the soundtracks for a lot of Western no, movies no in their heyday. Yeah. Um, but it's by Aaron Copeland. He did the Lincoln portrait, but this is like mm -hmm. another famous piece of his called Appalachian Spring. Uh, if you can find the Leonard Bernstein version of it, I think please that's do and one. enjoy and easily, easily imagine yourself on a morning sunrise in Appalachian Mountains mm -hmm. and have fun. 
Um, <clears throat> it embodies the Appalachian Mountains in spring very well. I think it does, too. Um, uh, that's all we have for today. Uh, we'll see you next time. This has been From the Center. Mm-hmm.